This is the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors, where you'll hear about many aspects of law in England and Wales with special guests, industry experts, and local charities. Here's your host, Amanda Jones. Hello and welcome to Season 3 of The Legal Lounge. If you haven't heard the shows in the first and second seasons, there's plenty of content worth a listen, with conversations and advice about divorce, injury claims and business partnerships. There are also some excellent episodes where you'll hear from local charities and learn about the amazing work they do. You can listen to these shows on your podcast app or by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. In this episode, we welcome Jack Fallows from Herald Wealth Management, who is talking to private client solicitor David Pugh about NHS pensions and estate planning. This episode is packed with useful information for anyone with a current or frozen NHS pension. When financial planning, please consider that your capital is at risk. Tax legislation is subject to change and depends upon your personal circumstances. Hello, I'm David and today I'm joined by Jack Fallows of Herald Wealth Management. Many people have heard of solicitors, accountants and financial advisors. You're a financial advisor, but what does that actually mean you do? Really, if I'm going to summarise it, I do two things. Number one, I help people protect their finances and I help people grow their finances. And so really, I have kind of three key ingredients, as I'd call them, which is asking good questions listening intently, and then explaining things in layperson's terms. And so essentially what I'm doing is I'm looking at all the different cogs that make up your finances. And so that's either your assets, so that could be pensions, insurance, savings, and so on, but also that's your circumstances and your aspirations, i.e. you want to retire at a certain age, or you want to save up for, I don't know, it might be putting a deposit down on your children's house or something like that. Fundamentally, I call them your financial cogs, and really what I do is try and ensure that they mesh together, move in the right direction, as opposed to grinding against one another. I quite like that analogy of, of, of the cogs. So who is it you primarily work with, Jack? I predominantly work with individuals, and that really is people with multiple pensions. It seems to be something that is quite confusing. Pensions in their own right are very confusing, but also when you have them en masse, um, ever since we've had these auto-enrolment roles, every employer you go to, you pick up a new pension. So working with individuals with multiple pensions, trying to make sense of that, get them working in the same direction. And then also business owners, um, especially when they want to strengthen their business, but also ensuring that the business benefits them personally. Quite a lot of business owners forget that they're taking all the risk, taking on all the stress. They forget to benefit themselves personally as well. So there are a few of the topics and areas that you, you'd advise on. Is there, is there any specialism or niche area that you, you love to advise on or you know, you've got those extra skills to advise on? Yeah, absolutely. So I've got kind of a bit of a passion for advising on the NHS pension in particular. That's very true, and I should actually know that, since uh, we have put together uh, an NHS pension seminar. That's something that uh, we're really looking forward to doing. But I suppose when people think about it, why are we actually doing a seminar on NHS pensions? (laughs) Good question. Yeah, um, well, first and foremost... The seminar is called Estate Planning with Your NHS Pension. So hopefully there's a bit of a giveaway there that we're merging what you do and what I do together. Why we're doing it? Well, that's one of those really good questions where it started off with one thing. There was an initial motivation and then inevitably we've ended up with something completely different. So it's evolved over time. Initially, I learned that the NHS pension is having a really negative impact on NHS workers and therefore a negative impact on us, patients. And 
I absolutely love our NHS. I've had my shoulder completely reconstructed in the NHS um, due to um, playing football. And funnily enough, you have as well, we found out, you've had yours reconstructed as well due to playing rugby. And you know what, if you if you looked at us, you wouldn't disagree that mine was from football and yours was from rugby. I was saddened to learn that there are issues with the NHS pension and therefore doctors were opting out of their NHS pension. Um, they were working less, so they were doing less out of hours or waiting list initiatives, working privately, which kind of takes us to a point where we've got longer waiting lists and um, and also retiring early as well, all of which is quite scary because for us, the patients on the NHS, it just kind of means that we're waiting longer um, for treatment and so on. But also it's quite scary as well because senior doctors leaving the NHS is not a good thing. Um, it creates a brain drain and usually it's the senior doctors that are affected most um, with, with regards to the NHS pension and I'll, I'll go into that in a moment. But also You'll know that through the NHS, a huge amount is lots of different people of different nationalities coming together and bringing in their different attributes, their different outlooks on life. And I think that's what makes the NHS so brilliant. But also junior medics, I'm finding that because of the issues around the NHS pension, they're getting all the way through training and then sometimes going and doing something completely different. So I've got a friend, for example, who's spent a lot of time training to be a consultant and then he's now moved over and taken all his skills into private dentistry, for example, which means that we don't receive all of that training and it's in part down to problems with the NHS pension. Is there any other particular reason why, why, why they would be leaving or is, it, is, is the pension really seem to be the main, the main issue? From my perspective, it's, it's really around the NHS pension. That's kind of where I, I specialise in. And I'll say this is part of the reason. So essentially, senior doctors receive really large tax bills for exceeding what's called their annual allowance mm-hmm. by contributing into their NHS pension. And so... Your annual allowance, um, it's applicable to anyone contributing to a pension in the UK and it essentially limits the amount you can put into your pension each year whilst receiving tax relief. Okay, so you put your pension contributions in and you receive tax relief on them. However, you can exceed that amount. And when you do, HMRC will ask for the tax relief that you've received back. So essentially you get a tax bill. And so senior doctors, when they're contributing quite heavily to the NHS, they've got high earnings, they're working lots of hours, they're really at the top of their game, they're incurring really large, what are called annual allowance tax charges, okay? They get them at the end of the tax year and they run into the tens of thousands um, and it's, it's not an incentive for working more hours in the NHS and you can kind of see why they don't want to work additional hours or um, kind of foreign nationals coming through um, to the NHS get off put by that from the stories that they hear. So this is something that Herald Wealth Management have been specialising in for a very long time, basically helping doctors with that issue. You'll be glad to know I'm not going to go into lots of detail on that, but let's just say that doctors could and still do incur really large tax bills with regards to their NHS pension. However, this is where we had to adapt and uh, and evolve essentially is because as of April 2020, the government increased two thresholds, two income thresholds. Um, And the Treasury estimated that this removed the issue for about 95% of doctors. It was a very contentious issue at the time. It still is, but they essentially moved these thresholds and therefore now it only affects about 5% of doctors in the NHS. 
At which point you and I said, well, okay, how about the other 95%? Are they still happy with their NHS pension? Are they still getting the information that they need? Um, and we really went from there. Absolutely. That was one hell of a discussion when you, you plan everything around what you believe is one of the most important areas and topics that needs to be addressed. And then suddenly that's removed. It's a question of what do we do now? <laughs> is, is there something else that we need to, to look at and address in more detail for that general population within the NHS? And that's exactly what we did, wasn't it, Jack? You just sat down and thought, what do we need to address now? I think you had to ask yourself that question. What was the answer that you came up with, Jack? <laughs> yeah, is um, I think from both of our perspectives, I had the goalpost move and you had the rugby posts move. What would you call them? Posts? Yeah, rub- rugby posts. Yeah, yeah. 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 sticks. Um, <laughs> okay, so from experience, I found that knowledge on the NHS pension was really low. And so I did some research and just thought, right, I'm going to speak to some good friends um, who work in the NHS or who have worked in the NHS, thought back to conversations with doctors, um, presentations I'd given to medics, um, did some reading. And also, um, you came in at this part, your brother works in the NHS as well, doesn't he? Yeah, absolutely, he does. uh, So he's already gone through quite a lot of the steps to try and progress in his career. And I certainly know from his experience, it's fraught with risks and uh, complications. <laughs> yeah. So so absolutely, I knew exactly where you were coming from when, when, when you were looking at these types of things. So really, we just reached out to people and just spoke to them and said, look, what is going on with your NHS pension? What are your, what are your thoughts on it? What are your feelings on it? And actually, something that I picked up was from the, the British Medical Association, which is essentially the doctor's union. Um, and something that they, they mentioned with regards to the NHS pension is that there's a lack of knowledge and understanding regarding it and they also went on to explain that pensions are a complex topic and we strongly encourage employees to take advice to ensure their decisions are well informed and that really just encapsulated it for me they're not saying senior doctors they're not saying people who exceed the annual allowance and get tax charges they're not talking about those people they're talking about NHS employees taking on advice to make sure they make well-informed decisions. And so that's why we thought, right, that 95% is really where we need to be focusing our attention, not not the 5%. Yeah, that was the light bulb moment. That was where we identified the opportunity that we needed to get in front of these people uh, and, and discuss these issues with them because it's more relevant for them now than ever. But I suppose when people think of solicitors uh, and financial advisors, we're not doing this for charitable purposes, are we, Jack? No, and as much as I've been dragged into quite a few different charitable events, no, this isn't one. So think of your finances as a series of cogs, and this will give you a metaphor as to why we are doing what we're doing. So you'll see this as a bit of a thread I, I carry throughout. When you implement a plan that includes your finances and your estate, what you're essentially doing is you're bringing together the different cogs that make up your finances in your estate and you're trying to get them to mesh together, move in the right direction. So the NHS pension is one of those cogs. However, it is grotesquely complex. There are many, many shades of grey. As a result, it's not really very well understood by doctors, which we've established. And as a result, it's also not hugely well understood by financial advisors and solicitors. And from my own perspective, some financiers actually try and avoid it if possible. And so therefore, if you're making a broad reaching plan of a doctor's finances and their estate, 
it makes sense that you have a good understanding of what is potentially one of their biggest assets. And so just let me bring that to life for a second. So sometimes in a meeting, I'll ask a client, what is your most valuable asset? And invariably they'll say, oh, well, it's the house, of course, and why wouldn't they? However, their NHS pension, I'll usually go on to prove, is frequently far more valuable than their house in monetary terms. So when making a plan that doesn't properly take into account the NHS pension and its nuances can mean that the other COGS, their other aspirations, goals, circumstances, assets, other elements of their estate, can just grind against that NHS pension because it wasn't ever taken into consideration that this is a very nuanced and large COG. This is why I think that essentially people in the NHS then opt out of it, um, which fundamentally reduces the pension fund that they have for retirement. They may then take out excess insurance or non-complementary insurance, so insurance that clashes with the NHS pension, and just really means that they don't have enough um, of a fund for retirement. And so that's what I mean when these, these cogs kind of clash together certainly can't disagree with that. From my point of view, being a solicitor that specialises in private client, particularly in wills for clients that have pensions, whether it's NHS pension, uh, as we're discussing in, in, in this stage, uh, or not, we have to have that synergy, we have to have that understanding, that joint up approach of understanding what is in somebody's estate and how we can best use that in order to implement the best overall strategy. So not just taking a will or a pension in isolation, but working out how can they complement each other and how best is that uh, going to benefit that individual's family or their loved ones or whoever it is that they wish to, to, to benefit. Um, not only that, it's to, again, understand what other elements need to be brought in and to protect uh, that individual and their overall estate, such as, you know, worst case scenario, what happens to... Uh, to their capacity, you know. Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, I'm seeing many people that are losing their capacity and haven't put any arrangements in place to say who can deal with things on their behalf if they're unable to do so th themselves. And even just having the knowledge of what is there to be dealt with is a fantastic thing to have. And this is one of the reasons why we are looking to put these seminars on for individuals to come on and give them the information that will be pertinent to them. That's a really good point, actually, when you're talking about wills, lasting power of attorneys, planning your legacy, your estate, tax efficiency, mm -hmm. um, making sure that you're not unnecessarily exposing yourself to inheritance tax. Not taking, at that point, your NHS pension into consideration is almost like you making an estate plan without taking into consideration someone's house. Mm -hmm. Because it's it's on a par, if not bigger, with how large of an asset that is, how much of someone's estate that makes up. It's Don't forget, it's something that's going to be paying thousands of pounds per year from a set age until you take your last breath. And then attached to that are also some other benefits which we cover in the seminar. But I think you've touched on something really important there. It's, it's <laughs> not taking into consideration your NHS pension is like making an estate plan and a will without including the house. Now we're going to go on to actually discuss the seminar that we've got planned. So the first question is, Jack, who exactly is the seminar aimed at? I like to divide this into three areas. So you've got 
when you look at the members guides as well, by the way, this is sometimes how they're um, defined. So you've got members, which is you're currently working in the NHS and you've got an NHS pension. And then you'll see in the member guides, it refers to deferred members. Now, that's a bit of pension terminology. Um, maybe something easier to describe that would be frozen members. So you worked in the NHS, therefore you've got an NHS pension. You've got a different job now, but you've still got an NHS pension. It's just frozen in time, really. And then also retirees, they get excluded a lot of the time, but also that's someone else who this seminar is targeted towards as well. The plan with the seminar is to obviously uh, run live live events as well as webinars, and we're really looking forward to doing so. Um, but another question that I've obviously got to ask Jack is what is actually going to be included within the seminar? You can't talk about the NHS pension and its different ancillary benefits without first talking about what is the NHS pension. And so I'll give you a bit of an overview of the sort of things that we're going to be talking about in the seminar here. You've got three schemes that make up the NHS pension. You've got the 1995 scheme and the 2008 scheme. Okay, These are referred to as the old schemes or the final salary schemes. And then as of April this year, everybody moved over to the 2015 scheme. And when I say everybody, that's people still accruing membership in the NHS pension, still working within the NHS. So the 2015 scheme is the new scheme, and that's a career average pension. And this is where things get a bit fuzzy because people get confused as to when and how they pay out. And so essentially, your NHS pension at retirement can be an amalgamation of all three schemes, essentially. It depends what you've um, accrued membership in, and that is just basically how long have you worked in the NHS and at which point did each of these schemes kick in. Um, so if we look at the three different schemes, there's lots and lots of information regarding them. So you've got um, different accrual rates. One will be accruing membership at 180th, one at 154th. When you look at your member guides, they contain all of that information. And if I'm honest, even for a professional, it gets a bit messy. So what I'd like to do here is just point out three really pertinent things you should be looking out for. With the 1995 scheme, you have a normal pension age of 60. That means the pension was built for you to retire at 60. Whereas in the 2008 scheme, it's 65. And then the 2015 scheme, it's state pension age. So when I say you can have an accumulation of all three, you could potentially, there's nothing to say that you couldn't have the 1995 scheme starts paying you at 60, at age 65, the 2008 scheme starts paying you, and then at your state pension age, which could be 67, let's say, that starts paying you as well. It depends which scheme you've accrued your benefits in. So that's your normal pension age, okay? Then each scheme has also got a minimum pension age. So the 1995, the 2008, and the 2015 scheme all have a minimum pension age of 55. However, 55 is less than 60, 65, and state pension age, respectively. So what they do is, because it pays you from retirement until your last breath, the NHS are basically saying here, Yep, you can have it pay at a minimum of age 55. However, what we'll do is we will actuarially reduce your payments. So instead of maybe receiving £15,000 per year, we're going to pay you £12,500 per year because you will be receiving that for a longer period of time. So that's your minimum pension age of each of the schemes. And then thirdly, I would point to the late retirement factor. 
this is a question as to whether it benefits you to retire later or not. So in the 1995 scheme, if you retire beyond age 60, the normal pension age, you don't have an actuarial increase in your pension, okay? So there's an argument there that it doesn't benefit you to work beyond 60 in that scheme. With 2008 scheme, yes, there is an actuarial increase. And then the 2015 scheme, yes, there is an actuarial increase. So it could potentially benefit you to delay your retirement. So the three things I'm pointing to there, the pertinent features as I would call them are the normal pension age for each scheme, get to know those, get to know whether it's worth you retiring earlier, the minimum pension age for each scheme is 55. And then finally, is it gonna benefit you to retire later than each of those ages as well? That's what I would refer to as kind of the pertinent features you should be looking at if you're just making some general plans for your career and retirement. I know with the NHS pension, and you mentioned it actually at the start, a lot of people used to opt out of the scheme for various tax reasons, but also you have touched on the fact that uh, people thought they were paying in inordinate sums into the pension scheme to have the benefit. What what sort of rates are people having to, to, uh, to pay into the pension? That's a really good question because... I think that in a lot of ways precipitates someone not wanting to contribute to the NHS pension and opting out or at least resenting being a member of the NHS pension, which is sometimes as bad. So I'll clarify where your payments go. Your payment into the NHS pension is tiered. And by that, what I mean is based on pay brackets, you will be expected if you want to be a member of the NHS pension scheme to put in a contribution. Okay, and that contribution increases on a sliding scale. So let's just say, for example, if you um, earn £20,000 per year, your contribution would be 5.6% of your £20,000 salary. Okay, it would come off that. If you earn £50,000 per year, your contribution would be 12.5% of your gross salary. In addition to that, the NHS contribute a flat rate, regardless of your pay, of 20.6%. Now that's significant. However, you don't have a pot of money necessarily with your NHS pension. And that again is something that causes a bit of confusion. Instead, I'm going to come up with quite a cheesy metaphor, which is the Tesco club card. Now the longer you shop at Tesco, the more club card points you build up. It kind of works like that with your NHS pension. You are accruing benefits, and those benefits are based on how long you're working in the NHS, so each year is taken into account, and also your earnings within those years as well. Just like a Tesco club card, the longer you shop at Tesco, the more you should be building up points. So therefore, where is the 20.6% flat rate from the employer and let's say the 12.5% contribution from yourself going? Well, now you need to think of this like a big cash flow exercise. So there's not a pot of money, there is an accrual of benefits that you have. The actual money is going and funding those people that are already in retirement. That's where it's going. 
So now the question is, all right, well, 20.6% is going into my pension plus another 12.5% from me. Other than paying for the people to be retired, what am I getting in return from that? Um, what you're getting is all of those ancillary benefits which we're putting into the seminar. And hopefully this really sets the scene as to where your contributions are going and why they are so high, because I'm gonna show you kind of why the, the ancillary benefits are so valuable. And just to start off at the tip of the iceberg is the contributions that you make during retirement go up with the consumer price index. And actually, as you accrue them, they go up with the consumer price index as well, which is a very pertinent point, especially since we're at currently 7% inflation. And then fundamentally, when the NHS pays you, it's going to pay you each month from the point that you retire until you pass away. So let's just say in the 1995 scheme, if you've accrued those £15,000 with the benefits that I mentioned, that is going to be £15,000 divided by 12 months, and it's going to pay that every year until you pass away. I, I certainly uh, understand why uh, members would resent having to pay in such percentages themselves, but I suppose one of the big factors to take into account is that 20.6 contribution by the employer, since uh, other private institutions uh, only have to put in 3% uh, compared to the individual's 5%. So yeah, there really is a hell of a benefit there just looking at the pension itself. Uh, but interesting. You have said there are lots of other ancillary benefits. Can you confirm what what those other ancillary benefits are? Yeah, so really briefly, if we just split them into three areas, you essentially with your NHS pension, and this is where your contributions are going, you get life cover, benefits that relate to ill health retirement and terminal illness. Right, so life cover, how exactly does, does, does this work? With regards to life cover, I'm going to split this down into three categories of members. So you've got members, frozen members, and retirees. And then I'm going to split it down even further into a lump sum and what your adult dependent receives and what your child dependent receives. And so I'm just going to stick with the 1995 section again here. So if you pass away as a member with benefits accrued in the 1995 scheme, at the point of death, a tax-free lump sum is going to be paid to your nominee at two times your pensionable earnings. So if you earn £100,000 per year, £200,000 tax-free will pass to your nominee, which usually I find is spouse, civil partner, someone to that effect. That in itself is a very valuable benefit and we show the cost of that in the, in the seminar. However, I find there's generally quite some knowledge around that but really there's next to no knowledge in terms of what an adult dependent receives. If you pass away after your normal pension age, your adult dependent, usually spouse, civil partner, is going to receive 50% of your pension. So again, let's stick with that 15,000 pound um, annual pension that you've accrued in your 1995 scheme. Your adult dependent is gonna receive 7,500 pounds worth of benefits per year. To purchase that on the open market would be called an annuity, and that would cost hundreds of thousands of pounds um, to purchase. You would have to surrender hundreds of thousands of pounds to an insurance company, and in return, they would guarantee you that seven and a half thousand pounds per year benefit. 
and it goes on and on. I mean, there's there's also um, your children can benefit from this um, up until their age 23, or if they're unable to work, they will also benefit from up to 25% of your pension for the rest of their lifetime. So I'm not going into all of the depths of it there, but fundamentally, there are, there's some benefits that you're accruing as part of your NHS pension that cost hundreds of thousands of pounds. The same also applies um, for frozen members, so they're not excluded, and the same also applies for retirees. It's just then you start to just tweak the figures ever so slightly. And the ill health retirement benefit, is it of a similar vein, or how, do, how do, exactly does that work? Yeah, again, this is something that I find there's a little bit of knowledge on, not a massive amount, however. So I find a lot of doctors know that something called ill health retirement exists. Um, sometimes they have a little bit of a knowledge on it, but I always feel as though it could be enhanced slightly. So if we start off with a key, and the key is there's two types of definition as to why you are retiring early, okay? So you're retiring before your normal pension age. So again, let's just remind ourselves that the 1995 scheme is age 60, the 2008 scheme is age 65, and the 2015 scheme is state pension age. And so therefore, in the 1995 scheme, let's just say that you are retiring due to ill health at age 50. Now there's two tiers. Tier one is you aren't able to perform your current job in the NHS and therefore you're retiring early. Tier two, you're not able to perform any job whatsoever in the NHS. And this could be due to any sort of incapacity from accident or illness. The tier one payment that you would receive, not being able to perform your current job, is the pension that you've accrued to date without any reduction. So do you remember before I said, if you retire early from the NHS, the minimum that you can do so in each of the schemes is 55, and we have to actuarily reduce your pension as a result. Here, you would get your pension that you've accrued without reduction, okay? Tier two, where you can't perform any job in the NHS, you're gonna get your tier one benefit, so the pension that you've accrued, and then also two thirds of the prospective pension that you would have accrued had you stayed in the NHS until age 60, for example, in the 1995 scheme or the respective normal pension age in the other two schemes. So what we're talking about there is you're getting your pension that you've accrued, it's not being that actually reduced, it's paying out prematurely and they're potentially giving you your prospective pension had you worked right the way up to your normal pension age. Again, to get those sorts of benefits on the open market would cost an absolute fortune in terms of an annuity or it to get even close to that in terms of maybe critical illness insurance or something to that effect, you're going to be paying hundreds and hundreds of pounds each month. So again, that's another glimpse of where your contributions are going when you're a member of this scheme in addition to what you would receive as just a pension at your pension age. You've guessed it. You've you've went through life cover and uh, ill health retirement. Uh, what about t- terminal illness? Another good one, and this is where I find people's um, knowledge gets quite hazy um, in terms of doctors. And so, the definition for terminal illness is if you have been diagnosed as having less than twelve months to live. What happens is we take your tier two ill health retirement benefits. So just remember that you can't perform any job with the NHS and what that would give you is um, your pension that you've accrued to date and then your prospective pension, usually two thirds up to um, normal pension age. We exchange that sum 
for now a lump sum. Okay, this applies to all schemes, um, so 95, 2008 and the 15 scheme. Um, it applies to current and deferred members, just not retirees. Um, and I'll give you a bit of an example here just to kind of bring this to life. So we had in the practice a consultant urologist. They were entitled to £211,000 as a lump sum, okay? Um, if you put that into open market terms as a critical illness policy, that £211,000 for that consultant urologist, they were 47 years of age, um, it would have cost them £164 per month. They get something very similar as part of their NHS pension. Now that's not to say that they shouldn't get a critical illness policy, however, when you're looking at all of these cogs that make up their finances and their estate from your perspective, David, that's something you certainly need to take into consideration. Absolutely. And I've, I've got to admit, even just talking about this, or certainly listening to what you've had to say about the, the topic, Jack, it is complex. It is not easy to get your head around. Hence, that's one of the reasons why we're doing the seminar. Uh, and, and for me, finding out some of those benefits and hearing about them, um, it does bring things to the fore from my own personal perspective because I've had to look at various policies and I do know that when you look in the open market, uh, there are policies out there such as in income protection that sound actually very similar to some of these benefits that the NHS members can receive. So I, th I think you touched on it a little bit earlier that there can be a clash of these insurances, especially if members do actually go out and, and, and buy these policies without having an understanding of uh, their actual benefits. Yeah, that's right. And so if you just think about it like this, um, when we look at the life cover, generally there's a knowledge um, with doctors that they receive some form of life cover if they pass away. And then the knowledge starts to fade a bit when we get to ill health retirement, a bit more so again when it comes to terminal illness benefits. And then finally, when it comes to the clash of insurance that occurs when we're looking at income protection, there's really not very much knowledge there at all. However, if I explain um, a, a real life example through this, again, using that um, consultant urologist, you'll see just where the clash occurs. And this is hopefully an example of what happens when you're trying to deliver financial planning for a medic and you don't have a full understanding of the NHS pension. So what is income protection first and foremost? So essentially it's a form of health insurance that pays out if you're unable to work. It's similar to the, um, the tier one or the tier two ill health retirement benefit in that you can choose whether it's gonna pay out if you can't perform your current job or any job. And that's for any reason. So accident, illness, you're just incapacitated, you can't work. Generally, they pay about 50 to 65% of your gross earnings. So your gross earnings could include your salary, your dividends, bonus, commission. The payment for income protection is chosen by the policyholder, but there is a maximum amount. So an example of a real life policy here is that you would receive 65% of the first £60,000 of your gross earnings. And then thereafter, you would receive 45% of your gross earnings above £60,000. However, they will pay that amount, that maximum amount, minus your state and employer benefits. And this is where it gets really interesting. So the income sources that are deducted at the point of a claim are sick pay, other insurance policies, 
income from another business, and you guessed it, pension payments as a result of incapacity. Now, if you just think back to what ill health retirement is in the NHS, that is a pension payment as a result of incapacity. The example wording from a real policy here is that where any such income is taxable, we will take into account 80% of the gross amount payable. So with this policy, for example, and this is the case with, with all um, income protection policies as far as I'm aware, they will take into account 80% of the ill health retirement benefit that you would receive, which would pay out simultaneously to your income protection. Let me run through this. We've got a consultant urologist, age 47, earning £143,500 per year gross in the NHS. They've been an NHS worker since 1998, and therefore they are a member of the 1995 and the 2015 schemes. They were paying for an income protection policy that cost £244 per month, and they would be paying for that until age 60. They chose the maximum amount that they wanted to be insured for. Okay, or they could be insured for. And I'm going to round these figures now so they're a bit easier to work with. So they chose a figure of £75,000, the maximum they could be insured for. However, if they claimed for ill health retirement on their NHS pension, their 1995 scheme would pay out £22,500 and their 2015 scheme would pay out £28,500. So they would receive £41,000 per year in total from their NHS pension. So what the income protection policy does, it takes that £41,000, it takes 80% of that, and it will deduct that from your income protection policy payout. So what this means is that where the consultant urologist trying to pay for insurance that would insure them for £75,000 per year, actually the maximum amount they would ever have pay out from the insurance policy was £42,500 because we have to deduct the amount that's being paid from your NHS pension due to ill health retirement. If they'd have had a policy that would have paid £42,500 per year as an income protection policy, it would have cost them £113 per month. So they were paying £244 for their income protection policy per month, whereas instead they should have been paying for a policy that was worth only 113 So it's quite a big difference between the two. A big difference indeed. And uh, I certainly don't know anybody that doesn't want to save money or certainly pay for anything that they actually don't need. Uh, I know I'm certainly one of those people. Um, I like to get uh, bang for my buck. And that certainly isn't something I would like to do. So it it does. It certainly shows how invaluable an understanding of the NHS pension is. So I, I know what we've went through today has been reasonably heavy. So what I want to do is just ask you Jack can you just give us a very quick summary of what we have discussed and the main features or points that people just need to take away from listening to today's podcast yeah sure it got quite heavy there didn't it so I'll keep it nice and brief (laughs) yeah Um, it's hard to go through the NHS pension without getting heavy so fundamentally the NHS pension it's a huge and complex cog that makes up part of your finances and your overall estate so you need to make sure that that cog complements the others that are around it. So your other assets, but also what you want to accomplish and the standard of living that you want to enjoy now and in the future. So you can't do that properly unless you really understand what that big NHS cog is and what it can do. 
and that stands for when you're taking on advice um, on the financial side of things or on the estate side of things and that's really what our seminars aim to do just increase your knowledge and um, hopefully you've got uh, somewhere to call upon um, if you need some advice down the road Thanks to David and our special guest Jack for lending their expertise. If you'd like more information about the seminars that they refer to, please email info at lblaw.co.uk. If you have a particular legal issue you'd like me to put to our specialist for an upcoming episode, please let me know by visiting lblaw.co.uk forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. If you found the conversations helpful, please remember to follow, review and share the episodes. And don't forget to go back and check out some of the shows from the other seasons. Speak to you soon. That was the Legal Lounge from Lanyon Bowdler Solicitors. Visit lblaw.co.uk slash podcast for helpful resources. And please do follow or subscribe on your podcast app so you never miss an episode.